being here at this point in August, I think it's also like a prime time to play what is probably one of our favorite games as people, but we don't really think about the fact that we're even playing it. And that's the comparison game, right? So you think like first day of school pictures could be an example. You get the, the picture taken, you get it posted, and then you start comparing the pictures with other people's first day of school pictures. Maybe you see someone's picture and you're like, why on earth would anyone get up that early to get their kid that ready for school, right? Uh, or maybe you look at someone else's kid and you think, why would anyone ever possibly send their kid to school wearing that? That would probably be if you saw my kid. Or maybe you looked at someone's first day of school picture and you think, oh, we should have done that. You know, like that, that would have been a good idea, maybe. But, but as we start comparing these things, we compare all kinds of things. A student, maybe it's even like comparing what kind of car you drive versus what someone else's drive. Someone else's drive. You try to find people that are maybe a little bit like you in that. Um, when you look at other people's pictures, what clothes are they wearing? What shoes are they wearing? But this stuff doesn't stop there. It goes well beyond there. What school do you go to, right? You start bump, or going into little groups based upon these different schools. Or maybe Maybe it's what school you went to. It doesn't matter. We love to compare these things and, and circle up based upon these. Um, maybe it's where you were born. Maybe there are some people that, that circle around people born in Indiana and then other people, like if you were born in God's country, you feel great about Kentucky, in case you're wondering. Born in Kentucky, you feel wonderful about that because it's so wonderful. But we tend to kind of bunch up based upon these groupings. That continues into the workplace, Right? Maybe you, you circle up with those that, that are actually pulling their weight and then those that aren't pulling their weight, well, you just kind of push them to the side. But somehow we always end up in the pulling their weight group. I don't know why that is that personally I always think I fit into that category, but we do these things throughout our lives. And maybe if none of these um, relate for you yet, I'm just going to say one word. I'm not even going to go into it about how we compare and put people in different categories. Politics, Okay. Again, I'm not saying any more about that. That's just a clear example of how we love to maybe separate into different categories. And the thing is, is that we don't stop with these different things going on in life. We do the same thing with sin. Whenever we think about our own sin, we're quick to look at other people's lives and try to find someone, maybe just anyone, who um, has a, maybe a sin that we consider more severe than our sin struggle, or maybe they struggle with this sin more frequently, and we start to categorize people and start to maybe define for ourselves who's in and who's out. Who is it that, that fits in that in-group and who is it that belongs out on the edges? And as we do, I think we need to wrestle through a question. What is it that makes us different? What is it that, that maybe we believe defines who's in and who's out? What is it that determines that? This week, we're jumping into week two of our series, walking through the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter two, or you can grab the Bible from the seat back in front of you, and it should be somewhere around page 783, but someone let me know that we actually have two different things out there. So you'll be close enough if you need to use the table of contents, just go left and right a little bit. Anyways, Romans chapter two is where we are going to be today. And as we look at the book of Romans, we need to remember that in this letter, what Paul is doing is he's unfolding the good news of the gospel and showing the implications of that good news for the life of the church in Rome. 
And we'll see that has clear application for us too, but I think we need to start by just looking at what's going on in that first church that received this letter. See, the church was made up of Jewish Christians, which were part of the the people of God for for over a thousand years, right? So they have this long heritage, this long family lineage of being tied to the people of God, but they've now um, placed their faith and trust that Jesus is the Messiah. So now they are these Jewish believers, these Jewish Christians. And on the other hand, you have these Gentile Christians. These are people from any other faith background that have then put their faith in Jesus and so become part of the church. You have the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And what happened several years before Paul wrote this letter is that the Jewish Christians and several of the Jews were actually expelled from Rome because they were fighting about this guy named Christus, which is probably fighting about the Christ, fighting about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. So you have this long period of time where Jewish Christians are kicked out of Rome and the Gentile church starts to grow and grow. And and then later on, just a few years before Paul wrote this letter, the Jewish Christians are welcomed back into the city of Rome. And when that happened, there started to be a lot of friction take place in Rome. A lot of friction between the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. A lot of questions around who is it that makes up the true people of God? What is it that, that makes you maybe on the in-group and not on the out-group? So part of what Paul does in this letter is apply the good news of the gospel to this situation in Rome. I think as we look at these questions, we need to wrestle through questions ourselves. Again, what does God view as his people? What makes us different? Is God using the same standard as us or not? Now, this may be kind of obvious, but as Paul gets into Romans chapter 2, he builds on what he said in Romans 1, right? Because it goes from 1 to 2, and then 3 is next after that, in case you guys were wondering. But as we get here into Romans 2, we need to remember what Paul wrote there in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says that he was set apart for the preaching of the gospel. He goes on to say, as you get to verse 14, that he's obligated to preach the gospel. So why is it that, or what what impact does that obligation have? Well, in verse 15, he says that he's eager to preach this good news. He goes on to talk about how eager he is because uh, he has this obligation. But why is it that Paul is so passionate about this? Well, verse 16 tells us that for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So Paul's so eager to preach this message because in it, the power of God is revealed. What what is this power of God? Verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So there's God doing something here to reveal his commitment to do what is good and right. His commitment to his promises that is unveiled in this gospel. But why is it that people need to hear this? Well, he tells us in verse 18. There's a word there. It says, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind because of their wickedness. So Paul's eager to preach this good news because God's wrath is being revealed. And this good news is something that invites them to something better. But what Paul does there from Romans 1, 18 through 32 is he starts to talk about this struggle and why it is that people are now under the wrath of God. 
Paul begins to unpack this, this idea of God's righteousness being revealed. He talks about how these people rejected God and it led to idolatry. It led to immorality and nothing was really going good. But throughout this section, verses 18 through 32, you see Paul talk about they, them, or there 28 times by my count. Paul, throughout this section, is talking about these people and what sin has done for them. And if you work through that, he's talking about those. If you look at the end there in verse 32, these are people who do these things he's talked about before and approve of those who do that as well. Paul says these people are without excuse. If you go back to verse 20 there in chapter one, because they not only do these things, but they approve of others who do these as well. And if you look at this comparison game that the church at Rome was playing, you can see that at this time, some of them probably felt a little bit puffed up. But then Paul makes this hard turn as we jump into chapter two, verse one. And my good friend, Daniel Tiger from Mr. Rogers Neighborhood says, it's better to work together. So you guys are going to help me out here, okay? So we're going from 1, 18 through 32 and 2, chapter 1. We need to figure out what changes in Paul's argument. What is it that Paul starts to do here? He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are, being, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Okay, so help me out here. What is it that Paul does that is a change from 118 through 32? Real question, not rhetorical kind. 118 through 32, he's talking about they, them, there, and two, chapter one, what's the big difference? You. Paul goes from talking about they, them, out there, that group, to then saying you. The second person, singular, he starts to call them out. And these people that were maybe puffed up in that first section before this are now put on the spot. Six times in that one verse, he says, you, you, you. He hits them hard here and he goes on here. Let's go ahead and unpack the, the rest of um, two, one through five. He says, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same thing, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Here, Paul hits right at the heart of our love for the comparison game. He says, sure, there are those people out there, they, them, who not only do these things, but also approve of them. But what about you? You agree that these people who do these things and approve of them are rightly under the wrath of God. But what about you? People who may not approve of these things, but you still do them. What is it that Paul is referring to? Well, we can look back at chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. Here are just a couple of things. He says things like wickedness and greed, those who are full of envy, strife, and deceit, gossips, slanders, arrogant, boastful, even those who disobey their parents, he says. So Paul's saying, hey, you don't approve of gossip, but 
Do you gossip? You don't approve of arrogance, but are you arrogant? You don't approve of pride when you see it in some public leader, but, but are you boastful in your own life? I think in verse three, we see our question today kind of stated in Paul's own words. When you play the comparison game and to feel better about yourself and your sin and yet do the same thing, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? What is it that makes you different? Do you really think that God is going to use the same standard you are using? Here in this verse, Paul's not really introducing anything new. This idea of this hypocritical judgment being called out is something Jesus called out in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Now at this point, what Paul does is he talks again about the wrath of God, and that's not very popular for us to talk about. I think part of that is sometimes when we think about the wrath of God, what we think about is God being sort of in our image. So we see God as maybe in some uncontrollable emotional fit of rage. And we think, how can a good God do that? But that's not how Paul uses this idea of God's wrath. I think uh, New Testament scholar George Lyde is helpful here. He talks about in Paul, how Paul uses the word wrath. He says, the wrath of God is not an emotion telling, uh, or telling how God feels. It tells us rather how he acts towards sin and sinner. You see, God's wrath is his right and righteous response to sin. I think if most of us are honest, we would say that we actually long to see that with some people throughout history. You see evil done like like what Hitler did or what Stalin did or Bin Laden. You can look at any number of names throughout history and say, I long to see those things made right. You know, we think that that we are the exception to that. We think that there's something different in us. But what Paul is telling us is that God's wrath tells us this, that, that God does not and will not passively sit back and watch sin and evil destroy his good design and his good creation. Rather, God works in active opposition to sin and the destructive effects of sin in our world. Like Phil pointed out last week, God's wrath is part of his righteousness and God's justice is the foundation for all of this. If God is truly just, then justice must be included in the good news. Wickedness must be dealt with. God will set things right. But again, we can start to think that this is good for us. But what is it that makes us different? Chapter two, verse six goes on to say this. It says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Now, as we look at that verse, I think it may make us a little bit uncomfortable if we're good Protestants who've been around this idea of being saved by grace through faith for most of our lives, maybe for those of us that grew up in a church like this. But as we look at this, it can kind of throw our heads in a head spin. Like, what does it mean that God will repay each person according to what they have done? 
What is it that, that Paul is hinting at here? Doesn't Paul know maybe the implications of what he's saying? What is it that he is articulating here? I think it's important for, to notice what Paul points out there. He says that for every person, there are only two possible outcomes. You will either be the recipient of eternal life or you will be the recipient of God's wrath and anger. Paul is highlighting in this passage as he goes on to talk about this, something that James highlights, something that John highlights, something that Jesus himself highlights in the New Testament. And it's this, that obedience is indicative of one's true spiritual state. Obedience reveals what is most true about what has happened in our lives. Obedience reveals what is truly the object of our faith. Our obedience reveals whether or not we're truly trusting Jesus. Paul is saying that what you do in this life matters for eternity. And when we think about how this interplays with salvation, I think Grant Osborne's helpful. He puts it like this. He says, we are saved by grace, but judged by our works. Let's be real clear there. We are saved by the grace of God and nothing else. But how we live after that point, what we do in light of who we are matters. Works are the result of our salvation, not the basis. And our works demonstrate that our hope and our confidence truly are in Jesus. Again, Paul highlights that how you live matters. Paul then goes on in verses 12 through 16 to point out that that God's desire was never for his people to merely hear the word, to hear the law, and then go and live otherwise. Rather, God's intention was always for people to hear God's word and obey it. He points back to the the Jewish people and the struggle they had with this, but he goes on to say that a Gentile who actually keeps the law, God's going to be more pleased with that than a Jew who has the law but doesn't keep it. I think Paul gives us an important little point that that maybe points to where our passage is headed whenever he talks about how um, these kind of people show that the requirements of the law are written on their heart. Well, here again, highlights that how you live matters and playing the comparison game isn't going to help. God isn't going to use that same scale that you and I often use. And at this point, Paul can maybe anticipate an objection coming from some of his Jewish listeners. I mean, Jews have been the people of God for thousands of years. Surely there's something different going on for them. They've got the family lineage. They've got the history. Surely something must be different for these Jewish people. They've been part of the story of God for so long. Surely they are different. And I think if you and I are honest, we're tempted to believe the same thing. Surely the fact that that my dad was an elder, my grandpa was an elder in their churches means something for me. Surely I can just hang my hat on the fact I was baptized as a kid. Surely that will help. I grew up going to church camp. Surely that matters. Or at my church camp, we had camper of the week and I won that award like two or three times. Surely that matters, right? I can just hold that little certificate out before God one day and say, camper of the week. Look at there. 1998, it was a great summer. Look, God, I, I should be good here. This should be good. We can put our faith in things that that, that maybe don't add up. So here's how Paul anticipates this person arguing. Let's jump to verse 17. He says, now you who call, if you call yourself a Jew, so you call yourself part of the people of God, if you rely on the law and boast in God. Okay, let's stop here for a second. Relying on the law and boasting in God, that's probably a pretty good thing, right? 
Like, that, that, let's see what Paul's doing here in 17 through 20 in particular. If you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, again, pretty good thing if you approve of what's superior because you're instructed by the law. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach yourselves, do you not, or yeah, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? So Paul here in verses 17 through 20 says, hey, these would be good claims to make. It's good to to have the law of God and to rely on that and to boast in who God is. The problem is you're not living in light of that. You're not living in line with the claims you are making. So then 21 through 23 there, he really kind of hits hard. And I think maybe we could think about what Paul might say to us. He might say, hey, so you who do not steal, do you spend hours a week on Facebook when you're in your workplace and thus steal from your employer? You who say do not commit adultery, are you secretly looking at pornography? You who say, be content to your kids or other people in your life, are you content? You who say to your kids, stop stressing about school. Is anxiety driving your life about what's going on with your kids in their school? You who say to your kids 15 minutes before dinner, no, or before bed, no, you can't have a cookie before bed. It's not good for you. Do you eat the whole sleeve of cookies after your kid goes to bed? Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Maybe so. (laughs) Paul hits here at something that is broken in this person making these claims. See, this hypothetical Jew, he kind of points out this hypothetical person of God, this person he's speaking to fails to do what he says he's doing and to not do what he condemns other people for doing fails to do what he says he's doing and fails to not do what he's condemning others for doing. And this whole thing is kind of heartbreaking what that results in in our world. And I think we can see it in our world today as well. Just look at what Paul says in verse 24. What is the result of people living like this? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. These people that are claiming to represent God, these people that are claiming to hold his name, that are claiming to represent him, live in such a way that the watching world sees them. They actually reject God because of the witness of others. That's a heartbreaking statement. These are people, Paul says, who God's right judgment is upon those who both sin and approve of sin and those who don't approve of sin but still sin. That is the message that Paul has hit us with here in these first 24 verses. At this point, I think we probably need to ask a new question. I mean, what hope is there for us? (laughs) If this is the case, what is it that we are to do? Where can we turn if we can't trust our own heritage, if we can't trust what we have done in our lives, if we can't trust what our parents have done, if we can't trust the family we come from, if we can't do this, is God just like sitting in heaven looking down at us and laughing? Is he just saying, well, why don't y'all figure this out? 
what is it you're trying to do? I think he shows us the good news as we jump in to verses 28 and 29. Look at what he says here. He says, a person is not a Jew. So a person is not part of the people of God who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision. Circumcision was the sign that God gave to his people. It was a physical sign to his people that marked them off from the rest of people. He says, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew. A person is part of the people of God who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Here, Paul gives us a little preview of what's to come in the book of Romans. First, he tells us that the Jewish people, the people of God, people that are now in that group of people of God are not those who are just that outwardly, but there's got to be some sort of change. See, God is doing something new, he's telling us. God is bringing about his people. He's marking off his people in a new way. The second thing he hints at that is to come in the book of Romans is that we can't possibly walk in the way of God apart from his spirit doing something in us. Apart from his spirit changing us. Apart from his spirit giving what he calls here a circumcision of the heart. You see, this isn't some new idea that Paul came up with. This is what God told his people in the book of Deuteronomy. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, where he tells his people, stop being so hard-hearted, turn back to God. In chapter 30, verse six, he tells them, if you will turn to me, I will circumcise your heart. I will set you apart as my people. It's what God promised to do through prophets like Jeremiah, what he promised to do through Ezekiel. He's setting a people apart for himself. Those people are built based upon their faith and trust in who God is and what he is doing. But the mark that they're set apart is that they have these circumcised hearts. They've been changed by the spirit, which means that their lives are driven by spirit-empowered, faith-driven obedience. That's what God is inviting his people to. That is what sets his people apart. Spirit-empowered, faith-driven obedience. Now, that's a really clunky statement, right? And I got to this point, even like with sermon stuff looking at it, I got to the point, I was like, well, Andrew, could you come up with something that feels a little more theoretical, maybe? You know, like, I don't know, maybe I could. So what I started to do at that point was I, I went around and I talked to like 30 or 35 people and I asked them a question. Tell me about a time in your life that you practice spirit-empowered, faith-driven obedience. You know what all of them started with? a blank stare, because that's a clunky kind of way to put it, but I think it's an important idea, okay? So, but after they got past the blank stare and I said, okay, let's think about this. When is a time that you took a step of faith because you knew God was calling you to it? What did that look like in your own life? I have to tell you, it was probably the most encouraging like hour and a half of my week, (laughs) Because I got to hear stories like someone talking about something as simple as earlier that week, someone walking by their office and making a snide remark, sort of a passive aggressive comment, and them feeling the spirit of God simply saying, don't retaliate. And choosing to walk in obedience to what God was telling them. I heard about someone else who had been in a comfortable career for over 20 years. They were really good at what they did. And then God said, hey, 
uh, I'm calling you to do something new, something different. And they had to take that step. And that was an incredible blessing for them. I heard about someone else who took a new job that was a major pay cut because they thought it was a step of faith. And so their spouse actually had to go back to work full-time too to make up the income difference. And they said, this thing that doesn't make any sense based upon human standards was actually an incredible gift to our family. Why? Because they took a step of obedience. I talked to someone else who told me that they thought that the worst idea ever was to lead a girls' high school small group for two reasons. One, they didn't have another evening of the week to give up. Two, this was a boy mom, not a girl mom, so she did not want anything to do with these girls. And yet she talked about how incredible it was to take that step in faith and to see what God did. I heard about people who simply took a step of obedience to pray over somebody when they felt the spirit prompt them with just with someone in public. And they got to see God's spirit move powerfully. I heard several other stories. Someone who even just had this thought earlier this week, they were trying to hire several roles at work. And so they started to put together a prayer list. And on that list was, hey, we had this perfect candidate for this role and they had to turn it down because we didn't offer the right benefit. So they hit send on this email to go out to this prayer team. And within like minutes, maybe at the exact same time, someone else comes in the office and says, so-and-so just responded. Their husband's benefits changed and now they're gonna be able to come to work. Just a little step of obedience. Now I share these stories because what I want you to see is that spirit-empowered, faith-driven obedience, it can be really big things in life. But oftentimes it's just little steps. And what God's calling us to as a people who are marked off by the circumcision of the heart is for us to be a people who are ready to say yes to Jesus no matter what the call is. And whenever the spirit starts to move, whenever the spirit starts to prompt us to do something, our posture is to say, yes, Lord. Even if we don't know how it works out, even if we don't know what it's going to look like, we are willing to say yes. So what might it look like to cultivate this in your own life this week? Well, I think it starts by actually engaging with God's word. See, sometimes we like to try to think that, that we just need God to, to speak something out of the blue. And sometimes it's like he's given us a lot of obvious stuff in his word, right? So we can start by that. If you go to cccgo.com forward slash info, click on resources there. There's a, 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 a Bible reading plan. That's the word I'm looking for. Bible reading plan through the book of Romans. And what I love about this is, is we're just asking you to do two days worth this week. Two days three and four is walking through Romans chapter two. And it has you read through it four times, each time with like a different prayer to God. And the last one is, okay, Lord, how do you want me to live in light of this? So as you're doing that, go into that Bible reading or whatever other Bible reading you're already doing with a posture of saying, I'm gonna say yes whenever the Lord calls me to do something. Have a posture of saying yes to the Lord and trust that the Spirit will empower you to take these steps. And God promises to do his part. God promises to bring in that renewal by the Spirit. God promises to lead and guide us. He invites us to take a step to do our part as well. And what's incredible to see is the result of a people who do this together. Did you catch that in verse 29? To such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Y'all, that's good news. Because if your praise is from God and not other people, it means you're set free from the comparison game. 
means you're set free from trying to find a way to stack up to those around you. And instead, you just trust that as you walk in step with the Lord, he is going to set you free from the weight of always trying to measure up based upon any other standard. That's good news. And it results in the watching world seeing something better. It results in them seeing something you know, one other story that I heard this week was about a guy who uh, had just moved to Evansville and had lost his community of friends. He had a community of believers around him that, that was incredible, an incredible gift to him, and he left that whenever he moved. And he had to take a step of faith to actually engage with a new group of guys. And one of the things he talked about was how transformative that was for him. See, one of the problems I think we have sometimes reading Scripture and engaging with Scripture is we think that it's up to us to do it on our own. But y'all, God has put us in a community for a reason. So I don't know what else your next step may be, but I believe that for somewhere around 100% of us in this room, it's probably toward Jesus and toward other people as well. I just want to challenge you on your way out today, stop at a table, get connected with a community of people. Get connected with people who can walk with you. But regardless of what that looks like for you, what I want you to know before we go today is that if this is an appealing thing to walk as part of God's people, who, a people who live for his praise, not the praise of the world around you, maybe you're thinking, what step do I need to take there? You need to say yes to whatever the Holy Spirit's saying to you now. If he's saying you need to start a relationship with him, come on down. We need to talk. We need to pray. If it's that you need to get connected with a group of people, take that step today. Don't wait. Let's be a people marked by spirit-empowered, faith-driven obedience. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I'm just amazed by um, the incredible truth that, that Paul points to in this passage. God, I thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. God, that you have rescued us. But God, that you see so much in us that you then say, I'm calling you, I'm changing you with my spirit, and I'm sending you out. God, will we be a people who are willing and ready to say yes to you no matter what? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.